0: Here we are in the book of Ezekiel again, and we are in chapter 33. So the words are off to the right here, Um, if you're following along on your devices. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, when I bring the sword against a land and the people of the land choose one of their own men and make him their watchman. And he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the trumpet, but does not heed the warning, and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you were saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Therefore, son of man, say to your people, If someone who is righteous disobeys, that person's former righteousness will count for nothing. And if someone who is wicked repents, that person's former wickedness will not bring condemnation. The righteous person who sins will not be allowed to live even though they were formerly righteous. If I tell a righteous person that they will surely live, but then they trust in their righteousness and do evil, none of the righteous things the person has done will be remembered. They will die for the evil they have done. If I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, but they turn away from their sin and do what is just and right, if they give back what they took in pledge for a loan, return what they have stolen, follow the decrees that give life and do no evil, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the sins that person has committed will be remembered against them. They have done what is just and right. They will surely live. Yet your people say, the word of the Lord is not just, but it is their way that is not just. If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, they will die for it. And if a wicked person turns away from their wickedness and does what is just and right, they will live by doing so. Yet you Israelites say, the way of the Lord is not just, But I will judge each of you according to your own ways. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has fallen. Now the evening before the man arrived, the hand of the Lord was on me, and he opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer silent. Then the word of the Lord came to me Son of man, the people living in those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one man, yet he possessed the land. But we are many. Surely the land has been given to us as our possession. Therefore, say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says Since you eat meat with the blood still in it, and you look to your idols and shed blood, should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword. You do detestable things and each of you defiles his neighbour's wife should you then possess the land say this to them this is what the sovereign lord says as surely as i live those who are left in the ruins will fall by the sword those out in the country i will give to the wild animals to be devoured and those in strongholds and caves will die of a plague I will make the land a desolate waste, and her proud strength will come to an end, and the mountains of Israel will become desolate so that no one will cross them. Then they will know, I am the Lord, when I have made the land a desolate waste because of all the detestable things they have done. As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. When all this comes true, and it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been amongst them.
1: Uh, Let's pray. Our our Father in heaven, thank you for the chance now to sit in your word for a time and we pray that it wouldn't be... Academic. Please, may your Holy Spirit take these words, your living word, and write them on our hearts and transform our lives and do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so we're in Ezekiel 33, Bibles open, leaflets open, you've got your outline there. Let's begin. Forgiveness is unfair isn't it? Because when we choose to forgive someone, we choose not to treat them as their actions deserve. Which is unfair if fairness is treating someone as they deserve, and forgiveness is not treating someone as they deserve. That means that forgiveness is unfair. So, When God says in verse 14 that a wicked person, when a wicked person turns from their wickedness and does what is just and right and they will live and none of their former offenses will be remembered against them, that's unfair, isn't it? This is a common criticism of Christianity. I remember having dinner in in the city with a a man who um, adhered to Buddhism and he said it's so convenient for you Christians You can just say, Jesus died for me, and that lets you off from the wrong that you've done. He said, That's immoral. Shouldn't everyone have to take responsibility for their own actions and be rewarded or punished accordingly? That's fair. Forgiveness is not fair. Now, that criticism of God isn't new, it's there in verse 17. The way of the Lord is not just if you forgive a wicked person without taking into account the wicked things they've done, God, you're not being fair. On the other hand, if God did the opposite and should, and should not forgive, well, then, of course, then he's also labelled unfair, isn't he? God is a forgiving God who loves people. Only an unloving God is into punishment, and the thought that, of God not forgiving uh, everyone, well, that would be really unfair, It's a much more common objection. That comes out in the claim of verse 13 being unfair. There we read that if a, a righteous person trusts in their righteousness and then does evil, then none of the righteous things they've done will be remembered. They will die for the evil they've done. And that leads to the same accusation, verse 17, the way of the Lord is unjust. God's not fair. So should God forgive or just not forgive? Well, either way, he can't win. But then, of course, in that thinking, neither can we. If we say God forgiving people is unfair, then we lose because which of us doesn't need God's forgiveness? And if we say God should just forgive everyone and God not forgiving is unfair, then we also lose because if he forgives everyone, well, where's the punishment for the and just, justice for those who've done heinous things? Does he just regard those things as things he doesn't care about? We want justice. Ezekiel 33 comes as a turning point in this book. Over the last four weeks, we've been working our way through Ezekiel, which so far has largely been God's message of judgment to his people and the nations. But now comes a turning point, which if we're to move to any hope of forgiveness, requires turning in our thinking because we can get it wrong Turning is the great theme of this chapter. Turning in our thinking about God. Turning in our thinking about sin. Turning in our thinking about the word of God. Turning even in our thinking about turning because we can have false views of repentance and what it looks like. The result is that by the end of the chapter, each of us personally, hopefully, will turn to God. That's the theme of the chapter and that's the aim of the chapter. Turning Repentance is God's great desire for you and for me. But true and lasting repentance requires God to take us through three steps of turning in our thinking that we've got to do. And he wants us to grasp this. Number one, he wants to grasp what, what he wants. He doesn't want to judge us. He wants us to repent. We have to grasp God's desire for us. Secondly, we have to... To repent, we have to truly open ourselves to listen to his word. Not just say we're listening, not pretend we're listening, but really listen as if it's the word of God to us. We might need to change the way we think about how we listen. And then thirdly, we need to grasp that God sees through false repentance, and it just doesn't work. Okay, so the first way to turn in our thinking is to grasp that God's heartfelt desire is for our repentance. It is not for our judgment. That's why God tells Ezekiel to tell his fellow exiles about him being recommissioned as a prophet or a watchman in verses one to nine. So there God commissions, recommissions Ezekiel as a watchman. And if that sounds familiar, it's almost word for word the same as what happened back in chapter three at his earlier commissioning except one difference. Here, God tells Ezekiel to tell everyone that he's been recommissioned. Back in chapter three, it was just for his benefit. Now he wants everyone to know. So Ezekiel's recommissioning was, was had, meant to have impact for everyone, and they were meant to understand this. Okay, how? Well, his recommissioning is couched in terms of him being a watchman. So imagine, imagine that you live back then and you live in a walled city. And outside the city walls are the fields and the, and the, the crops that, that grow. And people during the day have to go out and work in the fields to supply the city with food. But you're in charge of the city. How do you, how do you protect your people out in the fields? from an invading army, because you have no way of knowing whether someone's going to come over the hill and attack your people. So what you do is you appoint a watchman who will stand on the city walls and just keep watch. That's their job. And if they see an army coming over the hill, this is before the internet, mobile phones, satellite technology, right? Before, if they come over the hill, then they blow a trumpet, that sounds the warning, the alarm, and people have time to run back into the safety of the city walls. Right? Now, if there's such an army, and the watchman fails to do that, they fall asleep or they don't blow their trumpet, the blood of the workers is on them, right? But if he does warn them, and then someone gets attacked out there and dies, that person is responsible for their own death. And that's the point. God is saying to the people, I'm warning you through my word, and Ezekiel is the watchman. He's got the trumpet, right, and he's blowing it. And yes, your lives depend on him doing his job. Yes, he has a job to do. But you have your job too. You are meant to pay attention to the warnings of impending doom that come from Ezekiel the prophet. You are not meant to sit there in the field and close your ears or just close your minds or switch off or laugh at the watchman for getting worked up or think that he's exaggerating. That is not your job. Your job is to stop what you're doing, to listen to the watchman, to believe his warning, and to turn back and flee for safety. And if you don't, your blood is on your head. Now, of course, we're not in the time of Ezekiel, but we do have, in God's word, warning after warning in the New Testament, mostly from Jesus, but also from every apostle, warning us of the judgment to come and of the reality of hell. That is, it's not the early church that just developed this as a system of mind control, right? Uh, It's there in Ezekiel, which existed long before the church came into being, and Jesus himself believed it. He spoke most often about hell, and he himself warned his disciples of it. He says to his disciples, if you're... Hand or eye causes you to sin and stumble in your faith. You've got to take radical action to turn from what's making you stumble. Because if you knew how bad hell was, you would willingly pluck out your eye or chop off your arm and enter heaven dismembered than to have a full body and go into hell where the fire does not go out. It's that bad. And if we think, well, Jesus was exaggerating, he was engaging in a bit of prophetic hyperbole or something, just, just think for a moment what he went through, the agony and horror of crucifixion to win us away so that we wouldn't have to go there. Indeed, we're told God's, it's for this reason that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him, please hear this, would not perish but have eternal life. Now, if you heard that, you'd have heard from Jesus' own lips in that most famous of Bible verses, which speaks of God's love, that the default fate of the world is that we are perishing. And the only way out, mercifully, is through the intervention of God in his love and his son. Well, the reason why Jesus warns us is the same reason why God had Ezekiel tell the exiles that he was their watchman, so that they would hear the warning, a real warning, it wasn't hypothetical, and that they would turn to God. Now, did Ezekiel's people listen? Well, not straight away. Verse 10, they're saying, our offenses and sins weigh us down, and we're wasting away because of them. How then can we live? See what they're saying? We're now getting exactly what we deserve, Now, on one level, this is good, because finally, they're owning their own sin. That's a pleasant change. Up until now, they've been in denial. See, they're calling them our sins, and they see them as offenses, not mistakes. They're not minimizing them. They say our offenses are weighing us down And they know that what they're going through, the suffering, their present suffering, is directly because of their sins. We're wasting away because of our sins, they're saying. Finally, they own it, right? So that's good. But along with that, they've, they've adopted this kind of fatalistic resignation that shows they haven't listened. God has just told them, look, Ezekiel is your watchman. And his job is to save your life by warning you and if you heed his warning, you will save your life, but they're not listening to this offer of hope. They're just sitting there in despair. And what's stopping them repenting is that they have got God wrong in their thinking. They think there's now no hope. The universe operates by inflexible laws of karma. We're obviously guilty, we're suffering, that's it. We've gotta suck it up, accept the punishment. Kind of as if God's this coldly clinical judge. But this is to get God wrong. Please listen, verse 11. The Lord says, As surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But rather, they would turn from their evil ways and live. So turn. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? It's so easy, isn't it, for us to hear of hell... And to get God wrong, we we write him off as kind of cruel and sadistic and this masochistic maniac who just takes pleasure in seeing people suffer. Does God delight in sending judgment? Absolutely not. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord. In other words, what he's about to say that's true of him is as deep and as true of himself as the fact of his existence. As much as I live, and that is real, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, not even the wicked. Now, in this respect, God is, dif- is better than us because you can imagine that you or I might actually take delight in the wicked death of some people who really deserve it. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. My heart's desire actually is for everyone because I so love the world to turn and live. In other words, he doesn't want us to sit kind of despairing of this fatal, in this fatalistic attitude of getting what we deserve or being trapped in this universe of karma and being unable to change. He's calling us to turn, turn to him. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O people of Adelaide? Turning to him is what matters. That's the point from his first two scenarios about the righteous and the wicked people who both change tack in life. God says, if a righteous person turns from me to wickedness, that person's former righteousness counts for nothing. The righteous things that they've done won't be remembered. And if a wicked person turns away from their sin and does what's just and right, if they give back what they've stolen, if they walk in my ways, then none of the sins that person has committed will be remembered against them they have done what is just and right. They will surely live. What's the point? It's turning to him that matters. It's not your accumulation of how much you know, good or bad you have or haven't done. It's whether you turn to him that matters. Now, if we, if we think that the universe we live in is moral but impersonal, if we think of sin as just doing something wrong or not doing something right, And judgment, at the end of the day, will be by an impersonal system of weighing up good deeds versus bad. We will not get this. We will think what God has said unfair. We will be like that Buddhist man I had dinner with. Shouldn't we all be responsible for our actions and be punished or rewarded accordingly? You hear the criticism, the way of the Lord is not just, verse 17. Guess what? God's answer is, no, no, no. It's your way that's not just. And here's his reasoning. He's given everyone a chance to turn to him. And <laughs> you're not accepting it. That's just stupid. Right, so to say in our hearts God's not fair is to misunderstand God as impersonal when he is personal. Father, Son, and Spirit. And because God is personal and he is relational, Sin cannot be understood as just breaking an impersonal law, you know, which might warrant a fine that comes in the mail or a slap on the wrist from a judge who doesn't care. Sin is personally turning your back on God and breaking relationship with him who wants you in a relationship with him. Meaning that in the end, what matters is not some sort of tally between good deeds and bad deeds, which hopefully will tip in our favor, what matters is where we stand with him personally. Do you or I stand in relationship with him where the relationship is restored and healed such that we're living with him as our God and we are his person, or are we walking away from him and destroying what relationship there may or may not have been? That's what counts. God's heartfelt desire is that we turn from our sin. We stop sinning, we turn to him instead of falling under judgment. So what about about you? And what about me? Is there conscious, unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life that you haven't dealt with and you haven't come clean about? Because if you are here singing the songs saying you have a relationship with God and playing with this, you are walking away from God and guess what? Your relationship with him is false. In other words, you listening to this matters for your soul because what you can do is say, I am, I am forgiven, I am saved and then what you can do is you can go down a path of sin and keep um, fostering it and then get stuck and then you have to play Make believe because you aren't living as his person. This does damage to your soul and damage to your relationship with him. And he is no fool and he wants you, so he is calling you to turn. Have you heard? All right, that's what we need to do, but how do we do it? Well, now we get to the turning point within the turning point. So, verses 22 and 21 and 22 are the turning point within the chapter. And if this whole chapter is the turning point within the whole book, and that's why Ezekiel has actually been recommissioned because it's a turning point, then verses 21 to 22 are the turning point within the turning point. In other words, here is what we must grasp if we really are to turn, verse 21. In the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the 5th day, this was the 8th of January, 585 B.C., We can specify it, all right? Very important. A man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. So it's been a full two years since they first heard that Judgment Day had started for Jerusalem. That was back in chapter 25. King Nebuchadnezzar's siege has been going against Jerusalem for 18 months. And then then it's now been a six-month journey after Jerusalem fell for one survivor, to walk all the way to Babylon and locate the refugees in the refugee camp. Now, perhaps he's the first of a group. No doubt many have died along the way, having suffered 18 months of deprivation and starvation in a siege. All right. Well, those two years of waiting would would have been a tense and anxious time. Of course, these people would have grown up hearing the prophecies of Jeremiah, when they were growing up in Jerusalem. And now they've heard also the prophecies of Ezekiel, who's with them in exile, about God's judgment that was coming on Jerusalem. But now, on the 8th of January, 585 BC, they have now heard that what the prophets prophesied has come true. And suddenly they realize that God's word about judgment is true. It's not make-believe, the warnings weren't hype, they were real, and then it dawns on them that their hope in Egypt, that that Egypt would somehow come to the rescue, that was a vain, empty hope, just like Ezekiel the prophet said. So they realize that God's word about judgment is true, and we need to let that sink in, if we're going to repent, because, The temptation to doubt the truthfulness of God's word about judgment is as old as sin itself. Do you remember in the garden, how God gave the man the very clear word about judgment? If you eat fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Do you remember what the serpent said to the woman? You will not surely die. Temptation to doubt God's word about judgment. And what happened? They surely died. God's word about judgment is true. And yet we fall for the trick that God's word about judgment is true for others but not true for us. i got a twin brother who's in Sydney. Um, I rang him eight days ago, I rang him yesterday, but eight days ago I asked him, is it with Sydney-siders? Why is it that COVID's really going rampant over there? He said, oh, well, that's because 60% of people in Sydney think that all the COVID warnings are for someone else, not for them. <laughs> and what's happened? <laughs> all right. For Ezekiel's generation, God warned the Israelites about the judgment that would fall on Jerusalem if they didn't repent, and guess what? It came true. In Jesus' generation, God, uh, Jesus warned his generation about the judgment that would fall on Jerusalem if they didn't repent and accept the Messiah. And guess what? It happened. AD 70, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian army, it was Emperor Titus with his army. And the temple was destroyed, as Jesus said. And then for every generation, including ours, Jesus warns us of the coming final day of judgment. Will it fall? Well, he, Ezekiel said something about Jerusalem falling and it happened. And Jesus said something about Jerusalem falling and judgment coming and it happened. And Jesus said there's a bigger day of judgment coming and will it happen? We've got no reason to think that it wouldn't happen, have we? If we're truly going to turn to God in repentance, we need to let this sink in. God's word about judgment isn't pretend, it isn't hype. It isn't exaggeration. It is true. And we also need to let sink in that other realisation the exiles were having. There is no alternate hope. They were hoping in Egypt. All right. That wasn't true. And what can we hope in? Well, we can hope in karma. For us on the day of judgment, the kind of impersonal weighing up of good deeds versus bad deeds. It's not true. Neither is there... The vain hope that there'll be a second chance beyond the grave to repent. It's not true. Where could you go? You could go to Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and read that. And read of the desperation of someone in hell saying, Please send someone to my brothers who are still alive. And the answer comes back. If they do not believe the word of God, they will not believe even if someone rises from the dead. There's no second chance there. You could go to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. It's very clear, there's no indication in the New Testament that there's another chance. Which means, of course, now is the time to repent, isn't it? Because God's word about judgment is true, because there's no alternate hope, and also because God has a new message from the message of judgment. aside from the message of judgment. That's why there's this turning point in Ezekiel before this, judgment, 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 but in verse 22, Ezekiel, the prophet's mouth is opened because now he has a new message, a message of hope. It's as if God had to bring the people to rock bottom before they'd even have the wherewithal to listen and accept a message of hope. And we're going to get to that next week. But for this week, God is still clearing the ground before the rebuilding can come. And so, in the rest of the chapter, he has to clear away some false views about repentance. And the first such view is happening with the um, survivors in Jerusalem. So, despite the fact that Jerusalem had fallen, there were a few survivors. And they read into the fact of their survival the idea that they must be obviously blessed by God. There weren't many of them, though they were saying, yes, there's so many, but there weren't many, which made them think like, we're, we're, we're just like Abraham. I mean, there wasn't many of him, there was just one. But, but um, even though he was only one man, he possessed the land, didn't he? And um, there's not many of us. But, um, well, well, we're the last people standing, so God must be working through us, we're we're blessed, We're, we're like Abraham, the land is ours for the taking. Now, they weren't right, Abraham didn't possess the land, the only bit of land he possessed was the burial plot that he buried his wife in, but the rest of the land was held on promise, but you see what they're thinking. They'd survived the siege, they'd survived the famine, they'd survived Jerusalem's fall. God must be with them because they were surviving and therefore God would fulfill his plans through them. Do you know what? That view was false. It was false because actually they didn't repent. They had no concern for turning to God They were still eating meat with blood in it. They still bowed down to the idols. They still were shedding blood of other people. They were still defiling their neighbor's wives. In other words, they were still doing exactly the sort of things for which God judged Jerusalem in the first place. This was repentance without actually repenting. (laughs) It was repentance based on a, a kind of theology which they constructed from their own circumstances You know, um, I live in South Australia. We're COVID free. Not like those evil eastern states. And so God must be really blessing us. So therefore, God is in favor of what we're doing at the moment. So therefore, we're right and God's going to prosper us. How ridiculous that thought. Well, through Ezekiel, God says those people who are thinking that in Jerusalem, they're going to die. Whether it's by sword or by wild animals or by plague, they're going to die. In other words, the future is not with them, it's with you exiles. And with that, the spotlight now shifts from the Israelites in Jerusalem to those in captivity in Babylon, whom it seems have changed. Verse 30. People are now speaking positively about Ezekiel. They're standing at the doors of their houses. They're saying, Come and hear the message that's come from the Lord, because you know what he says comes true. He's like the latest in video entertainment. Um, it appears there's a new openness to God. They know Ezekiel's words come true. Verse 31, their mouths. Um, are, now speak of God's love, they're hearing from Ezekiel's God's love songs, beautiful voices playing instruments, they're loving the message, they're loving the vibe, they're loving the songs, they're loving the singing but they do not put God's words into practice and friends we can so easily fall into this can't we? We can love coming to church, I hope you do love coming to church, it's a gr- I hope it's a great highlight for you in your week But we can love coming to church, we can enjoy the singing, we can enjoy the message, we can enjoy the kids talk, enjoy the entertainment, and then when we get home, completely forget what has been said and not put anything into practice. James in the New Testament says, that is like going and looking in a mirror and then immediately going away and forgetting what you look like. Jesus said, that's like being a foolish man who builds his house on the sand, If you hear Jesus' words but do not put them into practice, it's foolish because when the rivers of the torrents of judgment will come against you, you won't stand. Whereas if you've been wise and you've heard Jesus' words and put them into practice because that's the difference, then you will stand on the day of judgment. Now, how do you be a wise person? How do you be someone who looks into the mirror And then doesn't forget what you look like. Well, God has spoken to us this morning and been our pastor. And Ezekiel 33 has told us what we need to change to practice true repentance. We need to change our thinking about God. We keep making God impersonal when he is personal. We can make him out to be uncaring and cold, like a God who takes perverse pleasure in people dying but we forget he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. That doesn't mean that people won't be judged. That would be a wrong conclusion. But what we need to take on board is that he takes no pleasure in it. His heartfelt desire is that we, each of us, would turn to him and live. And these are words echoed by Jesus. Repent and believe the good news. So we have to think differently about God And that means we have to think differently about sin. If we reduce sin to the level of misdemeanors, minor infringements, breaking the law, we will minimize it. But sin has to be understood relationally. We are either walking away um, from God or we are walking with God. And sin is personal because God is personal. Okay, that's why thinking forgiveness is unfair is stupid. What matters is whether you turn to God and take hold of the opportunity. That's what matters because that's a relational way of understanding. Get rid of the scales, which means we now need to change our thinking also about repentance. Repentance is not just changing behavior. It's not just New Year's resolutions, right? Repentance is turning from walking away from God and turning back to Christ. See, he desires us to live in relationship with him. It's so easy to think we're repenting if we just, um, you know, sort of say, oh, I must not, and then try and do it. And then we leave God or Jesus out of the picture. You see, repentance actually is all about coming to God again. It's turning. It's praying to him. It's opening yourself up to him. It's accepting his word as his word for you which you have to listen to, okay? Now, in a moment, Mark is going to lead us in a prayer of repentance. But what I'm going to do now is sit down and I want each of us to take a moment to think, what do you need to repent of? How has God spoken to you this morning? Where has he touched your life? Where do you need to turn around again and come back?